Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Welcome back to episode two of our series on heart disease in women, risk prevalence and diagnosis. Joining us again is Dr. Joshua Weinstock. He's our subject matter expert. Welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Last episode, we talked about some really important things when it comes to women's health and uh, heart disease. We talked about risk factors and uh, how they present and diagnosis, and we're going to continue that conversation now. So, Dr. Weinstock, referring back to estrogen, we talked about estrogen in the first episode and how it can have a protective factor uh, with women in heart disease. And I'm solely responsible, from what I gather, or or is it partially responsible for the fact that we generally don't have issues until about 10 years after men, right around the age of 65. Is that correct? In general, yeah, women have some degree of protection from um, from ho- hormonal protection from estrogen during the you know childbearing age up until the point of menopause and the postmenopausal years that kind of drops off. Yes. Okay. And so let's talk hormones a little bit here. Uh, you stated there were more at risk after menopause, like you just said, but what about pregnancy? Uh, anything that fluctuates the hormones, is that a risk too? Sure. So actually pregnancy itself um, is a very vulnerable period for uh, for females. Um, and uh, a lot of things that can, un- you know, unfortunate, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the problems, uh, there can be a lot of cardiovascular things that can... Um, complicated pregnancy. Sure. Things like preeclampsia, things like gestational diabetes, um, all those cardiovascular uh, things that can affect a pregnancy actually are a setup not only for, um, not only are they, can they be dangerous during the pregnancy itself, but actually increase the risk of cardiovascular disease uh, for those women later on in life. Wow. Um, And so, um, you know, that's a very, it's a vulnerable period of time. And you know, it, it's also important that, uh, you know, when taking history and, and, you know, that patients um, understand that that they need to be a little bit more careful. And as providers, you know, we need to be aware of those things. And if if there's an increased risk with pregnancy, is it multiplied by having a genetic factor or family history? Um. Yes. I mean, I, I would say the more kind of strikes you have, uh, right. you know, all those things can kind of uh, compound. And so, you know, if you already have, uh, you know, diabetes and now you have preeclampsia and maybe you have a family history, certainly all those things in combination can, you know, pretend a bad outcome later in life. And so, um, again, going back to prevention and disease mitigation, you know, these are all things that, you know, we want to be aware of so that we can lower the risk for our patients. There's also, I wanted to also ask you about spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD for short. Where do women stand when it comes to that? SCAD, uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, is actually a very interesting topic um, and very pertinent to our conversation here in the sense that uh, it's a disease that actually 
uh, predominantly affects women. Uh, so we uh-huh. see it most commonly in women. It can affect men, but mostly women. And when it affects women, it actually tends to affect younger women. Uh, really? So it, we tend to see it in women in their 40s and 50s. So it, you know, and it can be very concerning. So spontaneous coronary artery dissection, actually, um, what that is is a pathologic process whereby the coronary arteries are the, you know, the, going back to your anatomy, the coronary arteries are the blood vessels that come off the aorta and feed the heart tissue itself, so that the heart, you know, can do its job in pumping blood to the rest of the body. Uh, when you disrupt the coronary artery. Um, the intimal layer of the coronary artery and cause disruption of that intimal layer so that you cause what's called a false lumen or a false channel um, down that artery, you can actually impede blood flow to the end organ. So impede blood flow to the heart. And actually the symptoms can mimic a traditional heart attack that we see, you know, from patients who have ruptured plaque or from atherosclerosis or, you know, thrombus. Another thing. So the symptoms, you know, patients can develop chest pain, kind of a lot of the same symptoms. And it can be, uh, you know, it can be worrisome because when the blood is not flowing down that normal coronary artery, uh, you can ultimately have areas of infarction where the heart is not getting nourished adequately. And um, so it, it can be very problematic and it's, it's difficult to manage. Um, and it primarily does, you know, affect, uh, we see it mostly in women and it, it tends to affect um, you know, women early, you know, early to mid, uh, midlife, like forties and fifties or so, um, why it occurs is a little bit, um, you know, uh, there's not exactly one specific way that it can occur. Um, but it's thought that women, especially women who, um, are, have had recent childbirth or kind of in that, you know, uh, pregnant or in that postpartum period, recent childbirth, um, you know, due to the hormonal shifts associated with pregnancy and due to the demands on the cardiovascular system with that period of time, uh, maybe a little bit more vulnerable um, to having, you know, uh, huh. uh, disruption of the blood. People who have underlying connective tissue diseases, who have underlying vascular uh. issues tend to be at greater risk. Um, and uh, and so that's an, that's an important topic because I think, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of SCAD, um, but we do see it. It's not all that uncommon. And in fact, for women who present with, with an acute coronary syndrome before the age of 50, SCAD, uh, the statistics are about a quarter of those patients will be found to have SCAD. Um, wow. So it's not, uh, you know, for, for providers who work in a cardiology setting, this is something you will see. Um, <laughs> it's not all that rare. That's interesting. Yeah, it's not something, it wouldn't be your first go-to when, it, when someone comes in and presents yeah. like that. But that's excellent information. Now, we did talk about risks a bit in uh, quite a bit in the first episode, but I really would like to go back to those. I w- I was thinking that there was something that I wanted to ask you related to risk and um, or just have you clarify because I think most of us know that it is a risk. But there's illegal drug use like heroin or cocaine makes people more susceptible to right. Is that that's of course yeah. Um, cocaine can cause a coronary vasospasm and that can basically it can induce spasm of the coronary artery to the point where when the artery spasms it can cause a heart attack and cause myocardial infarction so that's something we see so you know all those uh, illicit substances things like cocaine and heroin you know they're, they're all bad for the heart for sure cocaine especially is a bad actor so let's talk about some of the risk factors that we spoke about so smoking cessation 
Are there any methods of quitting that are more successful than others that you've found? Sure. So um, it won't come as a surprise to anybody that smoking is bad for the heart and the cardiovascular system and in general, bad for the body. So we need to work with our patients on, you know, getting them to successfully cut back and quit smoking uh, to lower their cardiovascular risk. In fact, you know, people who smoke are anywhere from three to six times in, uh, at increased risk uh, for coronary disease. Um, so it's it's a tremendous increase for smokers. And so we have to work to uh, to help them. Um, it's easier said than done for anybody who, um. uh, you know, counsels patients on smoking cessation. It, it's, it's a challenge and it's certainly an addiction. And so um, patients, you know, and providers need to work together um, to build an alliance to help them successfully quit. You know, for some patients, they're able to do it cold turkey, but the majority, overwhelming majority are not. And so things like nicotine replacement therapy, patches, gums, all those things, you know, are in our armamentarium to use, um, you know, working with behavioral health care providers and counselors and therapists is a big role. And lately, you know, we do have some pharmacologic options. There are medications like varenicline and bupropion that, you know, uh, you'll see patients on uh, in an attempt to assist them with quitting smoking. Um, the medication options are things that, you know, patients need to discuss on an individual basis with their uh, providers because they do have side effects. And one in particular, you know, has, has a black box warning for things. So you need to be aware of the patient's history and it kind of has to be an approach that's tailored to an individual with an understanding of their past medical history. But for me, I think the approach that works best is actually not any one of these things. These things all work best, I think, in combination. Sure. So, you know, we need to work with our patients when we're addressing them, you know, making sure they understand their disease process and their increased risk, but they also need to work, you know, with ways, healthy ways to cope with, you know, their addiction and perhaps a medication, perhaps, you know, a therapist. When you take a multifaceted approach like that, I think, the, you know, patients tend to be more successful. Excellent. That's interesting about nicorettes or uh, nicorette or nicotine replacement in a sense, but I guess it's it's more the smoke that causes the vasoconstriction and all of the side effects. Or is the nicotine actually okay? So the nicotine itself is uh, not that it's okay. You know, it, it can it's it's it in itself uh, is not really the best, but it's better than you know right. smoking. You're basically inhaling you know hundreds of thousands of different particles. You're not just inhaling tobacco, you're inhaling right. a lot. And it's tough to say on an individual with those thousands of chemicals, which chemical is doing what. Sure. Um, but we know that, you know, if patients are able to cut back or, you know, quell some of their cravings with nicotine replacement, uh, that is a better option than picking up a cigarette. Uh, but ultimately, the goal would be to get them off of nicotine supplementation, um, you know, and ultimately, to, you know, to, to, to quit. Uh, right. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Now, we mentioned physical activity, a sedentary lifestyle is definitely a risk. Is a simple walk daily enough or should we be getting our heart rates up as much as we can? That's a good, great question. So it is important to be active, uh, physically active. Um, the American Heart Association actually has some established kind of guidelines on, you know, what level of physical activity is adequate. So, um According to the American Heart Association guidelines, they do their recommendations rather uh, suggest that patients should be getting a minimum of 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise. And uh. when they say moderate intensity exercise, what they mean is something that gets your target heart rate up to anywhere from about 50 to 75% of your 
target heart rate, which is based on your age. Um, if you can, and the formula for that is 220 minus your age is how we get to that target heart rate. So if you can get to 50 to 75% of that target heart rate, 220 minus your age, um, you know, and you get getting your heart rate up for 150 minutes a week, that should be, you know, what we all strive for. Um, the more, you know, the more physical activity in general, the better. Um, they also do say that if you exercise for at least 75 minutes vigorously, so for an ac activity that gets your heart rate up from above 75%, closer to 75 to 85% of your target heart rate, that, you know, 75 minutes of vigorous physical activity um, is what, you know, we, so it's either striving for 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity or 75 minutes of more vigorous activity. Um, so, you know, when you break that down in terms of counseling patients, you know, what I like to say is at least 30 minutes, five days a week gets you to 150 minutes. Um, so really heart rate does matter. So it's okay. You know, taking a walk is excellent. You know, you want to be physically active. So I wouldn't frown upon that by any means, but I think we need to work with patients to, you know, find ways to, uh, you know, be physically active and, you know, get their heart rates up. And what is the normal weight for the average woman, depending on height, of course, but BMI even, where should we be? Yeah. So um, it's tough to say what, you know, the uh, quote normal weight or, an, you know, what, but I think when we talk about BMI or body mass index, what we're really looking at is um, their patient's body mass index to their height. So when we calculate a BMI, what we're really looking at is a patient's body weight, um, in kilograms divided by their height in meters square. And you can kind of put patients in certain buckets as being, you know, underweight, being at uh, normal weight, being at being overweight or being, you know, uh, obese at the other end of the spectrum. What's considered normal is anywhere having a BMI between 18 and a half. So 18.5 up to uh, the cutoff is really like 24.9 up to to 25 is where we really draw the line. So 18 and a half up to about 25 um, is considered a normal BMI. Um, when you get up to 25 to 30, you're in that kind of overweight category and then above 30, um, obese and anything under 18.5, you're considered to be underweight. Um, but the BMI, as we know it, you know, is an imperfect tool. Right. Um, it doesn't take into account how the weight is distributed. It doesn't take into account muscle mass. It's just, you know, uh, a body mass index. So it's good to look at BMIs on, you know, we use it in healthcare and it's good on a population level when you're looking at, you know, large numbers and population level. But for an individual, uh, it's probably not the best indicator of health uh. um, is what we're coming to realize, but it's still an important thing. Um, and it's still, you know, routine practice that we, you know, follow a patient's body mass index. When you said uh, how the weight is distributed, is that relevant? Because we've often heard that if if uh, if a woman is carrying it high uh, throughout her torso, she's more at risk than if it's more hips. Is that true? Yeah. So we do know that for men and women who tend to have more um, weight, you know, distributed uh, adipose in their belly and their uh, that tends to uh, be worse. Um, you know, so there is some degree of of truth to that. Um, but, uh, you know, another thing that also plays a big role is muscle mass. So like uh, a bodybuilder, for example, um, you know, it may be, you know, maybe massive and may have a lot of weight, but in fact, for, it's very cardiovascularly fit. Uh, and so 
again, it's tough to, the, sure. the numbers are, are sometimes tough when you look at just a BMI in the absence of the patient. Um, it's tough to draw a lot of conclusions there. You really sure. need to look at the patient and then you know, use that Makes as a starting sense. point. Yeah, great. Uh, in reference to diet, and I think everyone everyone has a pretty good idea of what they should eat or what they shouldn't in most cases. But when it comes to teaching patients, do you have like a top three to stay away from and a top three to add? Not, you know, I have to stick to three. It's just, I'm just throwing it out there. But what are your big ones? Yeah. So I think the big ones, and for me, I try to make it like as easy as possible for patients to understand. Um, my big one, I think is the things that are worse for patients. You know, we know that fried and fatty foods are no good for um, coronary disease, but things like, you know, in general, staying away from animal products. So things like, uh, you know, meats and high fat dairy, cheeses, those kinds of things are ways that, uh, you know, those are the kind of foods that we would want to stay away from. I think, unfortunately, in, in the American diet, you know, we kind of have, uh, you know, a steak and consider that the main meal. I actually, in college, um, studied nutrition and one of my uh, favorite uh, professors in college uh, was a, uh, a do- had a doctorate in nutrition and taught, of course, and he, I, I still remember this years later, said that we should use meat as a condiment as opposed to this main you know, meal. And so his point was that, you know, you, it's okay to eat meat in moderation, try to pick leaner, you know, cuts, things like chicken or fish as opposed to steak and try not to make it be the main part of the dish. You know, you can eat meat, but use it kind of as a condiment as opposed. So that kind of stuck with me. Um, you know, eating meat here and there, like I said, is, is okay. Um, but try to pick leaner cuts. So things like, you know, chicken, fish, as opposed to the, uh, heavier, uh, things. Um, the other thing I usually counsel my patients on is it's always better, I think, to eat at home with a meal that you've cooked because you know what's in there. Going out and eating out is is fun, um, but you don't know really what's in the food that you're eating because you're not the one preparing it. And a lot of times, unfortunately, when you go to a restaurant, you know, they're, you know, the, the meal, you're not in control of what you're eating because somebody else is preparing it. Um, and so, you know, eating at home, I think tends to be healthier. I, I try to encourage my patients to cook themselves. Um, you know, and then, you know, the other big thing is, um, you know, try to minimize things like salt, trying to minimize things like, um, saturated fats, um, you know, and, uh, so those are the kind of the big things I talk with my patients. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Now, um, we're all living in a high-paced society now and, you know, very results-oriented. So we, we sometimes feel like we're on a hamster wheel just running at the top speed. Uh, what are some your favorite strategies for reducing stress for women or for anyone? But- sure. Yeah. So stress is interesting because um, evol- from an evolutionary standpoint, some degree of stress is actually protective and is good. And so oh. um, stress can prevent can propel us to, you know, make a deadline or, you know, encourage us to study for a test. And when stress becomes disordered uh, is when, you know, it's chronic stress. So it's, 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 you know, stress that hangs around for long periods of time. And it's with this chronic stress that we do worry about the cardiovascular system. Chronic stress we know can cause uh, deleterious effects on multiple organs in the body. It can weaken the immune system. It can cause physical stress to multiple organs. Um, and so, you know, 
when patients are under chronic stress, those are the ones that we need to work with in finding tactics to help them with, you know, with, with their stress levels and ways to cope in healthy ways. Um, so things, you know, very much in vogue now and things that, you know, work for patients are things like mindfulness, yoga, uh, meditation, um, things like, you know, which can, uh, other things that can improve, uh, lifestyle, like getting exercise, sure. um, you know, those are things, um, counseling, therapy, you know, whatever ways that patients can work to lower their levels of stress over the, you know, long periods of time will be important and, and beneficial to the cardiovascular system. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so you wouldn't recommend alcohol as one of those stress reducers. <laughs> I know that's, a, that's a risk factor as well, but how much is too much? <laughs> yeah. So alcohol is an interesting topic because, you know, I'm sure we've all seen stories where they say, uh, you know, a glass of red wine is good for you. And, uh, you know, that's actually been shown that moderate alcohol consumption um, can, you know, have some benefit. Um, And when we refer to moderate alcohol consumption, what they define as moderate is actually, it's unfortunately, it's different for men and women, but they label moderate alcohol consumption as one to two drinks for men and one drink for a woman. Um, but moderate alcohol consumption is in general, uh, you know, considered to be okay and, uh, may, you know, offer some benefit, but in cardiology and cardiovascular disease, we also do know that alcohol can be extremely bad on the heart, especially for people who, you know, abuse alcohol. We see alcohol related cardiomyopathies, unfortunately. And so it's a double-edged sword and it's something where, you know, um, again, it's tough to say whether it's. It, you know, whether it's truly beneficial because we know that it can cause harm. Sure. Um, and it can affect other organs. Can re, you know, for alcoholics, can raise cancer rates and be toxic to other parts of the body. But in general, in moderation, you know, a glass of wine a day, I think is okay. And some would say maybe offer some potential benefit. Okay. Good to know. All right. Just, just don't have that second one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have any examples of, uh, of any patients, like a, a female patient that's coming to you with uh, chest pain or uh, something that relates to what we've talked to today that puts in a real life scenario? Sure. So, um, I do have one of my favorite patients from clinic who um, came to me. Um, she was having some symptoms, which had kind of been dismissed by some other providers that she had seen. Uh, they were a little bit, you know, somewhat atypical in nature, but she was most alarmed by a family history. I believe her father had uh, coronary artery disease and had had a bypass surgery. And when she came to uh, to me as a patient. Um, you know, she had already had some risk factors for coronary disease. I believe she was in her early sixties, um, and, uh, had uncontrolled hypertension, uncontrolled hyperlipidemia. We came to discover, um, and really hadn't seen a whole lot of doctors throughout her life, Uh. but wasn't feeling right. Her main complaint actually was, um, was dyspnea, not chest pain. She was short of breath and it had somewhat of a limited workup and, Basically, it was told, you know, that uh, based on the workup that had been done, uh, that, you know, no, it was, uh, no clear uh, explanation was given. So she got referred to cardiology and she was somewhat scared hmm. to, you know, I remember early on talking with her because of her father's history of bypass surgery. She was, you know, very anxious about what the workup would involve. And um, 
we ended up doing a stress test as part of the workup and it came back positive. Uh, um, and I remember she was, you know, somebody who you know, that also made her even more uneasy about things. Um, and I, we had to have a frank discussion about the indication of, you know, uh, for cardiac catheterization. And she was very worried. I don't think she knew a ton about cardiac cath at the time. And, um, you know, had seen what her father had went through with bypass surgery and was worried that that might ultimately, um, you know, be the path that she was headed down. Uh, there's, uh, f unfortunately, you know, she ended up, she did get a cardiac cath. She actually did very well with the cardiac cath. Um, she was very nervous about it. I actually was there when she had it done. She came with her husband. We did find that she had a pretty severe lesion in her mid LED. So she yeah. did get stented. Um, she got a stent to her heart. Um, and that was actually around Christmas time a couple years ago. Um, and, um, she was scared, but after going through the cardiac catheterization, she actually realized that, you know, she had built up this fear and anxiety in her mind after seeing, you know, the demise of her father to coronary disease. Um, she went through the cath, we optimized her medically. And now, you know, we, I've seen her many times in follow-up now, and she's had as like this new outlook on her life where, you know, unfortunately, we did find that she had the disease, like her father. Fortunately, she didn't need bypass surgery, and you know, one stent was the fix. But now she was somebody who I had a we had a tough time working together because she didn't want to take she was reluctant to take medications and other things. And once we found the disease and she realized that you know we could work through this and that this wouldn't necessarily be, you know, the end, um, we've worked very well in, you know, optimizing her hypertension, her hyperlipidemia. And um, her husband, the interesting thing was uh, that he actually now, he hadn't seen doctors in years and saw what she went through. And now he's a patient of mine that we that I follow. And so um, that's one of the outcomes that kind of comes to mind because um, there's a lot of apprehension that goes into the workup and diagnosis and treatment of this disease. But, you know, we have good treatments nowadays. And so it's not always, a, you know, a bad story. We can, you know, take a bad story and work to, you know, minimize uh, and 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 work to improve outcomes ultimately. What a great uh, story! It's perfect, actually. Yeah, knowledge is power. I think sometimes when people know what they're dealing with, but that's an excellent example, and it speaks to as clinicians that we really need to be aware of that uh, anxiety that people have in these situations because uh, they don't understand a lot of times and what's going on, and it, it sounds really scary the minute you mention heart. So that was a perfect scenario. Thank you. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us regarding heart disease in women before we close? Sure. So um, first of all, you know, February is Heart Health yes. Month. And so it's, it's, it's awesome that we're dedicating time to this very important session. I would say as providers, you know, part of the healthcare profession in general, we should all take this very seriously. As I mentioned, it, heart disease is the number one killer of both women and wow. men in this country. And uh, not, you know, as I said earlier, not everybody knows that. And so saying that out loud and acknowledging that is important. Um, so I think the take-home points are, you know, to acknowledge that and to work, you know, on some of these strategies that we talked about throughout the podcast to, uh, to lower that. Um, and I think that as providers, you know, all of us can hopefully work to educate our patients but also go back to our families and friends and community at large to educate, you know, people on on this disease process. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, I got my red on for uh, Heart Month, so we're ready to go. 
Uh, I've certainly learned a lot. There was a lot I knew, but a lot I do right, but there are always some things we can improve on. That's an important piece for all of us as women, for women who are listening to this to, you know, think about yourselves as well as your patients. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, Dr. Weinstock. This information has been incredibly helpful, like I said, uh, for all of us. So um, thank you for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And thank you for listening. Be sure to check out the many courses and podcasts available at EliteLearning.com as you develop in your career. Like I said, knowledge is power. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.